it's really unusual, I think, in Australian history to have an organisation, um, like a member-based organisation, turn 100 years old. This is Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. I'm Sky Manson, I'm your host for this episode. The CWA is an icon of Australia. Everyone knows it, respects it, everyone has a story to share about it. It's basically akin to family for anyone who's ever lived in rural Australia. For the last 100 years in New South Wales, the CWA women have been responsible for huge progress in the areas of health, facilities and telecommunications for the bush. But more than that, decades ago, when city women fell in love and married men who were from the country, they're often leaving the comforts of their city life to take up a house that was no more than a dwelling. Often there was no electricity, no plumbing, It's unlikely there was a garden, and plush finishes and soft furnishings were not widespread. The adjustment was huge, and times were lonely. And this is where the CWA women quietly played their part, arriving on the doorstep of these women with warm scones or cake to introduce themselves and then explain the lie of the land and offer friendship, connection, and eventually community. Our guest today is the CEO of the CWA of New South Wales, Danica Lees. She grew up on the outskirts of Sydney in Picton, studied ag science and went on to work in a law firm and has now landed as the CEO of the CWA of New South Wales. To me, Danica is a representation of the modern day rural woman, splitting her life between her corporate role in Sydney and her newly purchased farm near Gunnedah. In this conversation, we explore Danica's unconventional rise in the ranks of ag advocacy, and we observe the relevance of the CWA of New South Wales as it celebrates its 100-year anniversary. Yeah, and it is a big moment, um, quite quite a moment. And it's been something that the organisation has been, well, looking forward to for a long time, really, but I suppose like really kind of gearing up for the celebrations for at least a few years and and maybe even longer. So it's, um, it is a big moment. It's, um, it's really unusual, I think, in Australian history to have an organisation, um, like a member-based organisation, turn 100 years old. Um, that said, we're also sharing our centenary with the Royal Agricultural Society of New South Wales. They're 200 years next year, which is just, you know, we <laughs> 100 years is massive, but when you start talking about 200 years, it's absolutely phenomenal. Um so that yeah, there's been a, a, a lot of planning uh, going into what's happening, or two of the big things I should say that are happening is our, there'll be a book uh, that's being put out. Uh, we've commissioned an author, Liz Harful, to write that book for us, the hundred year history of CWA. So I'm deep at the moment in sort of the whole publishing and book world with um, final manuscripts and and you know negotiating with publishers and 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 first pages and end matter and all these types of things that 
Look, I have to say I'm well outside my comfort zone, but thankfully we've had a fantastic author, um, Liz, who's just been doing a, an excellent job for us. And I think the book is going to be something that will appeal not just to CWA members, but I think, you know, the public as a whole to pick up a book and be able to read a story of an organisation and what they've done over 100 years. And the other big thing that will be happening as well is our 100-year conference, which will be happening in Sydney. We usually have our conferences in regional locations, but our very first conference that ever took place 100 years ago was actually in Sydney. We can't be at the same venue that we had back then, which was Town Hall, um, because oh, we don't fit. We're actually too big. <laughs> so, so we'll be at Royal Randwick. Was there ever, within the organisation, was there any ever inkling or concern that this moment wouldn't be reached, that it wouldn't get to 100 years? Uh, look, certainly not in my time, but, but perhaps once upon a time there might have been. The CWA of New South Wales, and, and it's like most CWAs across the country and actually most membership-based organisations, particularly ones that have their members based in rural areas, uh, you know, they have experienced a decline. At the peak of our membership, we were probably, uh, I'd estimate it was sometime in, in the 80s, and we were probably sitting at around about 25,000-ish members. Um, so since that time, we've certainly declined in, in membership. And again, as I said, that's, that's similar of many other membership-based organisations. And one of the big challenges is that we've got, a smaller and smaller pool of people to draw from who would be your typical CWA members, the people in that, you know, used to live and work in rural communities where, say, a farm might have, you know, supported obviously the farm owner and their, their family and then also had a couple of other families working on the farm, living on the farm, attending the local schools, involved in the local community events. Um, that's not happening as much anymore. So, so CWA is no no different to any other organisation. We've we've had to um, deal with those challenges. So, I don't know if there was ever a time that we thought that we wouldn't get to a hundred years. I think there has been certain steps taken to try and make sure that the organisation stays strong and relevant, and you know continues continues on into the future. And I think. You know, in my time, you know, no one's asked the question about reaching 100 years, but but also in my time, we're very cognizant of making sure that, as I said, we stay strong and relevant into the future. So, And I'm confident that we're doing that. So I'm looking forward to another 100 years for CWA in the future. Bring it on. <laughs> Can we step back a bit? I'd love to know what, the, what those days were like in the 80s because, as you alluded to, of course, in rural Australia, there were so many more people around and communities were less transient than what they are these days. But can you tell me from through the CWA lens what um, what the organisation looked like and what kind of community events and meetings and get-togethers were held and what they looked like? Yeah, I can tell you a bit about what they looked like based on, I suppose, both on, on what I've read and also what I hear about from, um, you know, people my age who have childhood memories, you know, really strong and fond childhood memories of, of what it was like for them uh, when they were really young, living and working and, and, and going to school in those communities. And um, my husband is one of those. He went to a really tiny school uh, that had about anywhere between sort of nine to 12 kids in the whole entire primary school from kindergarten to right through to year 12. 
and uh, he had a, one other one other um, person in his year with him right through school. But you know, he his his community and his his mother as well were involved in CWA, and he has those strong memories of you know often going to CWA functions and really looking forward to it because being able to get a, a good feed, as he would put it. Um, but you know, it was a way for communities to connect. It was a way for for him coming from a really small community and one that was fairly remote at the time and, and probably still considered remote now, to be able to come together, support each other, help each other, you know, have and just, you know, it didn't necessarily have to have a reason to come together, but they just knew that it was important to make sure that they did come together. And, you know, tennis tournaments on the weekend were is really common and um, though all of that was a really, really common occurrence, and and as I said, it's um, it's uh, look, it's nobody's fault in particular. I just think that these areas, when you go to them now, like the school I mentioned of my husband, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, people can travel further, so they do, um, and the farms have become a lot bigger, so there's less people living in those in those areas. So you know, it's a, still a wonderful place to live and work and have a have a life and have a family but very different to those times um, back in the 80s from a from a CWA point of view I've read some of the minutes and and you know meeting agendas and items from back in those days they were pretty active like really active and I don't just mean active in their communities they're still they were also very politically active as well and they had a lot of numbers so you know they would they were part of protests at Canberra, in Canberra at Parliament House when there were issues around taxation of um, taxation of farms going forward and and that you know they were involved in so many different aspects of it and so well respected and you know could command meetings with whoever they needed to and um, you know there's a bit of a um, romanticism around the fact that a lot of government ministers and and uh, you know, politicians of the day would be quite afraid of the CWA coming to visit them to talk about um, various different issues. And, and some of that kind of legend still exists today, which is not a bad thing. And we use that to our advantage and we're still able to get really good access when, when we need to. How has uh, the CWA and its approach to rural life and supporting rural life, especially in New South Wales, um, remained relevant and kept its and and aim to be to, to still be modern yeah I think we still do and do the things and work on the things that that were really important to our members a hundred years ago it's really interesting to pick up some of the early meeting minutes and have a look at the reasons why CWA was formed like the things that that women back in those days talked about as to why they felt they needed to come together and and you know, work on these issues together. And they, a lot of the time, they centred around access to health and access to education and, you know, the, the, the vibrancy and resilience of their rural communities and how they kind of underpinned that resilience for those communities going forward. And so all of those themes remain very, very similar today in terms of what our members work on. It's just the detail changes in terms of what we work on. You know, we, we work on, for instance, connectivity internet connectivity because you know having good internet connectivity can enable some of those things around access to education and access to health to be better uh, we work on agricultural based issues that affect farmers today because 
um, you know, a lot of our communities are based in regions that are heavily dependent on farming economies. So the yeah, it's 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 interesting to look at. There's, there's this common sort of thread and theme throughout the hundred years of the types of issues that we work on. It's just the detail of those issues that change over time. The fabric of the rural landscape has completely changed in that there are way more women these days who are in the workforce who are um, and also we're seeing this you know we're in the midst of this wave of women being able to on a part-time basis earn income off the farm and make that contribute to the whole family's operation so how does the CWA working in with um, with that and the changing landscape there yeah and th- and that you know that does evolve over time and but also when that evolves out the the makeup of our membership evolves as well so so and th- and then that dictates how how we work on things going forward so some of the obvious things that people may have heard of and that we keep working on going forward are, are having you know evening branches or um, branches that have more flexible ways of you know, approaching approaching issues and discussing problems. And I would say particularly over the last couple of years, you know, branches have had to do that as well, have had to work out how to use Zoom or use um, online means of communicating, emails, social media, all of those types of things to be able to, to stay in touch. But it's actually helped them as well because, as you say, a lot of, you know, the, the picture that I painted before, of you know, the, the people meeting every week and going to CWA functions or going to community events, you know, yes, there's less of a pool of people to draw from, but people are actually quite busy as well. They don't have the time to be able to put into these, you know, community um, initiatives as much as they would like to. I mean, they're very passionate about their communities, but it's just a time constraint as well. So we as an organisation need to be keep that in mind all the time as well and just make sure that we look for creative ways to include people and have people involved in whatever way that they're able to at, at any particular point in time and I think you know I think we've been pretty good at that we have there's no doubt we've evolved I mean we've had to we're, we're 100 years old so to be around for 100 years you, you have to change and you have to evolve over time um, so we've already done a lot of that and and we'll continue to do that. What's the average age of your membership? Yeah, we have a pretty big range in members. So you have to be 18 to be a member. Um, we do have some junior members. So we do have really anywhere from sort of 18 right up to, I mean, we do have members next year that are turning 100 when we turn 100 and we're doing some special recognition for them as well. So, you know, big range. But in terms of the average, um, like a, a, a big sweet spot for us with the members is that sort of newly retired age maybe sort of anywhere from mid 50s to to sort of mid even mid 70s that that sort of period in there where women are appearing well at least this is my take on it at least is sort of starting to be able to have a talk about time before starting to at that at that point in their life they're starting to just kind of come out of um in many instances that kind of like really really busy period where you've got you know, you might have young children or you're working on a business or you're really working hard in your career or maybe all of those things all at once um, and sort of that newly retired or semi-retired sort of um, age group is a, is a is like I would say most of our members are in, not most, but if we had a if we had an average um, membership age, it would be members in that age group. They're people that 
they still might be in the workforce, but maybe they've taken a step back and they really want to, at that point in their lives, they really want to do something to get involved in their local community and or they want to advocate about issues that they see as needing to be addressed in their community and they understand that CWA is a really good channel to be able to do that. So that's that's a, it's a pretty typical story for us. Mm. And regardless of the CWA, I just think that cohort of women, um, there's so much wisdom to be shared and the platforms in which we use these days, so social media and the internet and stuff are not so sort of um, they're readily available to everybody but not used by large swaths of that age group and I I just think anything that can harness their wisdom and give it a greater platform is very valuable. Oh absolutely and yeah couldn't agree more because they they do they have so much uh, life experience Mm. and but at the same time so much energy as well uh, uh, to be able to kind of you know help others with that life experience to you know be able to advocate on an issue that they see perhaps you know younger women or their daughters facing in their community they don't have time to work on it so so they'll they'll look at what they can do to support younger people in their family and it's yeah there is a huge amount of um, wisdom within the collective ranks of the CWA membership that you know the and and people from all walks of life as well I have to say you know obviously a big area for us are people from um, rural backgrounds but we also have a lot of city city members or we have people who've lived in rural areas and have now moved to metropolitan areas or vice versa so there's the sort of general wisdom that you would get from you know people that are of a certain age anyway plus the fact that as I said that we've got really some really interesting people that have done really interesting things with their lives and had you know different careers or different experiences or you know, lived in different areas of Australia or different parts of the world, and you know, it's, it's some some it's, it's quite it's quite astonishing sometimes when you go to branch meetings and and hear some of the stories that that are told. There is a lot of wisdom to be imparted there. I'm I'm interested to hear, Danica, your um, point of view because you actually didn't you grew up at Picton on on the outskirts of Sydney. Um, so not necessarily on a on a huge farm and maybe didn't know the CWA as you were growing up, but lots of people, what, how do you think the community by and large perceive the CWA as an advocacy arm or just as a support network and lovely, um, Not I don't mean that in a, um, in yeah, a bad no, way, though, but like women mean. who support yeah. you and yeah. welcome you to the community and point you in the right direction. I I think that I think the organisation has it's probably been through you know different stages and it, and it's uh, there's been times where you know we have kind of pulled back into you know really concentrating on that um, community support aspect and our advocacy work hasn't been uh, as as loud as what it is what is what it has been in other parts um, of of the organisation. So for instance, when we first started you know, that's what the organisation was all about. It was 100% about advocacy. That that was it. And then as the organisation grew and, you know, there's m- more and more different initiatives and, and more and more women from different walks of life and backgrounds um, who wanted to be able to, 
you know, integrate some of, you talk about some of their wisdom, integrate some of their experiences and wisdom into the CWA. There's been more and more things, you know, bolted on to the organisation, which is good. I mean, it's it's it needs to be like that. It's a very grassroots driven organisation. It's all about the members. So really at the end of the day, it's up to the members, the direction that they want to take the organisation. So I think there has been times where we've been very, very active with our advocacy and there's been other times that, know the focus has been on other areas as well but I think that really just reflects on whatever might be going on in that era and what the organization needs to respond to so even though it's quite a large organization and is sometimes seen as you know a little bit conservative um, you know they're not really they're, they're, they're quite willing and able to respond to any issue that they mm. see come up um, I'd say in my time so I've been with the organization uh, coming on to six years now um, we've certainly really ramped up the advocacy work and tried to give as many members as we can a platform to have their issues heard. And we try to always remind, you know, the, the, the wider community that the CWA is more than 10 scones. That said, I mean, scones and, and faiths and fundraising have paid for just a colossal amount of good in community areas as well in in rural community areas I should say so you know we don't shy away from the scone um we've recently adopted a, a term where we talk about having conversations with someone and you know the importance of still having that aspect of our organization recognized for all the work that it, it has done and continues to do as the CEO of the New South Wales CWA, you, in fact, are quite a good reflection of um, of the membership and because you didn't grow up um, necessarily on, uh, from, you know, from a huge farming area. Can mm. you tell me a little bit about where you did grow up and what your days were like as a child and was the CWA yeah. really part of that? Uh, no, no, CWA wasn't a part of that back then. I'm not sure that I was aware of the CWA when I was a child. You know, unlike a lot of... As I said at the start, that a lot of my friends, the same age as me, um, who grew up in those in those country towns, you know, they're very aware of the CWA. A lot of them, the CWA is part of their kind of um, weekly um, existence almost. So, you know, very aware of the CWA. Um, my background is, yeah, as I said, I grew up in Picton. I um, on a small, um, quite a small farm. Oh, well, actually, I wouldn't even call it a farm. It was three three acres, um, which is which allowed me to have some horses, and we had you know pets and and trucks and and a bit of space around us. Um, so yeah, certainly, I, I'd say probably some of my my Sydney friends might call it a farm, but yeah, not not a farm, but certainly a really lovely. Um, place to grow up and as I say have a bit of space and freedom around us my parents still live there now uh, and my and I'm the eldest of five children um, a lot of my brothers and sisters live in and around the area as well Picton's very different place to what it was back then um, it, it was quite rural when I grew up there it, um, notwithstanding the fact that it was a, a smaller block than uh, of three acres that I grew up on um, it's it's quite a different place now. It's almost becoming a, um, a sort of outer suburb of Sydney as Sydney grows and grows. 
Was ag and farming and a country lifestyle something that was aspired to within your family and spoken about a lot? Is it is that what your fabric is made up of? Um, uh, yeah, look, a little bit. I think it was more just um, being able to have a bit of space around us. I think that's what my mum and dad wanted. They moved from, I was born in Penrith and, um, and you know, I was quite young when they when they moved to Picton and people probably thought they were crazy back then, um, young couple buying this kind of undeveloped bush block in, in Picton and building a house on it all, all by themselves. Um, so I think for them, they just wanted to be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, I think for them, they just wanted to be able to get their family and their children you know, out of out of Sydney. They saw more of a future for their children um, in being in a place like Picton, which still allowed them to stay in pretty close contact with you know their extended family, but but was out of Sydney enough that we, as I said, we could have that bit of space around us, and we spent a lot of time, you know. Um, down the bush as we used to call it when we were kids or down the creek or you know down at the river or you know doing just doing just doing things like that that you know you take for granted at the time but you realize when you're older that you know it was quite lovely being able to do that as a kid Um, as far as the agricultural influences I uh, had horses when I lived in Picton and I went to a high school in Barrel that was lucky enough to have agriculture as an elective on offer and I was pretty you know pretty drawn to that right right from the start did ag and also um, cattle team which was you know going and showing cattle at different shows local shows around the place culminating in the Royal Easter show every year so I was always a part of that as well and um, yeah that I just loved it I just I loved being a part of that Uh, at the time when I was quite young I wanted to be I remember I wanted to be a vet. I was really, really set on on being a vet and, uh, you know, to get into vet science at the time and similar now as well as quite a high mark that's required to get into veterinary science. And, you know, I didn't think I got a terrible mark, but it it certainly wasn't high enough to get me into vet science. So I started doing ag science um, at the uni and and loved it and, and stuck with it. Sorority Clothing is a relatively new brand which was founded in 2021 by Cara who after living in London for many years wanted to bring a little piece of this to Western Queensland. A cattle property 80 kilometres north of Roma is where the idea was born to create quality cotton pieces that are not only wearable and timeless but would suit any age, shape and style. Liberty of London is a signature collection and the beautiful blouses, headbands and accessories have sold out over many times. Sorority loves colour and vintage style fabrics, so if you aren't a fan of floral, the gorgeous ginghams and stripes will really complement your wardrobe as most garments are trans-seasonal with all-inclusive sizing. Kara hopes to celebrate modern femininity by connecting with like-minded women who not only want to look good, but feel good too. Winter styles coming soon. Sororityclothing.net
it's so amazing how much you've achieved in the agricultural sphere across quite a number of kind of platforms. I want to fast forward to the first time that I came across you, which was as the founder of Ag Chat Oz on Twitter, which is mm. a, the first kind of uh, chat of its kind, I think, in Australia or the world. Can you tell me about how, how you started that and why you started it? Yeah, um, that's sort of a bit of like, well, I think it's a sort of interesting backstory to it. Um, I, so, and we might come back to this. So I, I, yeah, I completed Ag Science and then went and worked in Narrabri and Dubbo for a while as an agronomist and loved that, you know, great, great work, great experiences. Um, certainly, you know, having now purchased the farm myself, um, thank thank my previous self for having had a fair bit of experience in that field so I can sort of um, know a little bit about what I'm doing with my own place. (laughs) Yeah, I certainly don't know it all, but at least I know a little bit, probably just enough to get into trouble. But um, so I did did all that. And then um, after doing that for a while, I actually went back to uni and did did law. um, And once I'd graduated that, um, and that that actually made it sound very quick, it was actually six and a half years of part-time study, but anyway, we might again come back to that. But um, once I graduated law, we'd also then at the same time moved to Sydney for, um, you know, my husband's career, not not very sort of um, woman parish of me, but that's that's what <laughs> that's what happened. I was also really happy to be in Sydney just to be around family as well for a little while. I had... Um, know some young children and I wanted to be closer to my family so to be to be in Sydney for a while was fine so it was when I got my first job as a lawyer um, a very junior lawyer at a at a relatively local to me firm called Bland's Law um, a small at the time small um, employment law firm run by a husband and wife team and they've they've grown since since that time you know into just a fantastic fantastic business uh, they encouraged me at the time. One of the areas of law that they were looking into was social media law. Um, got me to have a look at, you know, social media law issues and aspects. But part of that also was encouraging me to get onto Twitter, which I hadn't done before I got there. And on my first day as a lawyer, I mean, quite unusual. My first day as a lawyer, one of the very first questions I got asked was, oh, are you on Twitter? And I said, no. And they said, oh, you really should be. I mean, I don't know many other law firms that have been encouraging their employees on their very first day of work to get a Twitter account. So they did. I hopped onto Twitter and started to realise how I could use it. And, of course, given my background, I really was very interested in using it. Just to, I felt quite out of touch with uh, what I'd spent you know, decades working on. I felt quite out of touch with the agricultural industry being in Sydney. I felt like a little bit of a fish out of water um, because I'd only just moved to Sydney and I was sort of starting my career all over again, nothing to do with agriculture in the legal space. Um, And I wanted to be able to use social media to see how I could, you know, keep in touch with what was going on in the industry, um, both from an industry trends point of view, but also just from a personal point of view, keeping in touch with people. So started to you know use Twitter for that and follow a few farmers and industry people um, and have conversations over Twitter with that and then in amongst all of that the uh, the live export ban happened 
Um, and there's anyway, there's a whole story in that which you can probably cover at, a, at, another, at another time with other people that were around at the time that was seriously impacted. But for me, I remember going to work the next day after that ban. Well, actually, it was after the Four Corners story was aired and then um, just before the ban was announced and going to work the next day and all I could see on my Twitter feed was just like hundreds of thousands of tweets, just this huge campaign to ban live export. And there was no, there was no voices in there representing the agricultural industry. And yeah, and, and yeah, there was, there was no, yeah, there was, and some of, it was, you know, it was a really difficult time, really difficult time for the industry, very difficult time for the public as well that had just seen that footage, which was absolutely appalling uh, and absolutely needed addressing. Uh, but I just couldn't see the agricultural voices in the mix with the discussion on that. And that's um, kind of how Ag Chattos, um was 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 born and and got and got bigger was just me saying look there was a similar initiative in the United States called Ag Chat and I sent out a tweet and said look is anyone interested in sort of hosting and facilitating a weekly discussion on Twitter a bit like what they do in in the states called Ag Chat and perhaps we can call it Ag Chat Oz I got a couple of people um, like I got a lot of support and then I got a couple of people specifically who said yep Think it's a great idea and in fact I'm really happy to help and let's let's do this together um, those two people were Tom Whitty and Sam Livingston so the three of us um, got our heads together started pulling together the did you know channels. them prior no I didn't yeah I, I think I had met Tom um, perhaps once he was working at the time with Crop Life Australia I think I had met him um, perhaps once or, or spoken to him perhaps through those channels, but not really. I didn't really know them aside from, you know, their Twitter um, presence. Didn't really know them. Um, and, yeah, out of that, Ag Chat Oz um, started. And as you mentioned, it was, I think, at the time, one of the very first Twitter chats that ever kind of kicked off in Australia. And for, for that to be, um, you know, focused on agriculture, I think it was it was was pretty big, like a pretty big deal for us. We thought that was pretty good, and um, you know there was a lot of interest, and it it really it really kicked off and and brought a lot of people together from you know all corners of the country to to talk about various different issues. So there were the weekly ag chat Oz um, moderated discussions that would happen every Tuesday night. But the good thing for me to see was just like the amount of spin-off type conversations that would that would come out of that. People would talk about an issue and then there'd be someone else that would have the same issue and then they could go off and talk about it. And I, and I know there are a lot of, um, you know, professional um, relationships and, and kind of networks and things formed just out of having that weekly mm. kind of get-together mm. in a virtual sense. It's so for so... 2012, that was pretty kind of... Uh, well, it was 2011, I think, we kicked off officially. But, you know, for that kind of early 2000s, uh, sorry, early 2010s period, um, it's, it was a pretty pretty big thing. I can, we're, we're kind of used to it now in 2021. But back well, then it was a pretty it, big thing. It sort of um, it, it was so um, exciting for the time. It opened up 
like you say, a whole heap of networks, it almost became a bit of an agenda setter. Like I was working as a journalist, I was presenting at Country Hour in Western Australia and it was a constant source of reference, that's for sure, um, and finding stories and new voices and brought together ag and farmers and people working in the industry in a way that they'd never been brought together before. It was it was so yeah, great. So what's happened to it now? Well, now it's sort of people still use the hashtag quite regularly, Ag Chat Oz, to to kind of tag anything ag related. And there's a, a lot of discussions that still go on on that hashtag. The chats really kind of came to a bit of a natural end um, about a year ago. And, you know, we it's and that's fine. Like that's sort of 10 years ish of having weekly, weekly chats. Um, and we had some other people involved, you know, through that time with helping us to pull together chats and moderate them and things like that. But they sort of came to their natural end, I think, as as things do, but also you know, the, the networks were there, the relationships had been formed and, and it also meant that people, you know, the agricultural community is not such a hard community to find anymore on Twitter. <laughs> like you don't, they're there, they're, they're, you know, you can follow what's going on with them. Um, and there's also, you know, a range of other different platforms that have, that have come in as well. So uh, there's still agricultural related chats that happen from time to time and you know ag charles can still have one on as needs you know basis if we you know have issues like the one that i related about the live export pop-up again you know that might be the perfect time to, to have a chat again like the, the community is still there the network is still there the hashtag still there it's just you know the weekly chat things kind of come to their come to their natural end i love profiling you Danica for life on the land because you do live quite a nuanced life on the land in that you married a farmer but you have spent the more recent part of your life living in Sydney and um, you've brought your children up there but you are just about to or you just have made taken the step to to purchase your own farm. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you, why you wanted to do that and, and how that came about. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think I'm probably at times, I think the best way to describe me is I think I'm probably a bit of a jack of all trades, which unfortunately means that I don't really get to master any of them. But, but you know, I do wear a number of different hats and um, I suppose that that bodes well for me in my current job where you you know you do have to sort of have a little bit of knowledge in a lot of things to just to be able to get things done um so you know my current job is 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 great in that respect that it's it brings all of that background and all of those skills together but yeah in terms of the the recent farm purchase and how we came to that um my yeah my husband is from the area that we bought a farm um, in his, um, it's a little tiny um, locality called Gulai, which is near Malali. And um, when I talked about the school that he went to before, that was the, the Gulai school, which is no longer there. So he's from there and, and grew up, grew up there. And um, you know, his parents were farmers in that area. Uh, and then when he went off to uni, his parents actually sold their farm and and moved to Tamworth and bought a smaller farm and um, and then he he went he went 
back very briefly in between uni and um, uh, sorry after school and before uni and then ended up going through uni and sort of pursuing a career in agriculture and he was one of um, you know before agronomists were really even much of a thing in Australia he was one of the first so he was um, one of the first agronomists that Elders had ever um, employed and you know he's pursued his career from there as well so we've both been working actually full-time um, either in the industry or in somehow related to the industry for you know in my case over 20 years and in his case um, nearly nearly 30 years and and the idea of having a farm was something that we always wanted to do um, but as you as you and your listeners will be aware it's it's not necessarily an easy thing to just decide that you're going to do and step into and do um certainly from a financial point of view if nothing else um and then there's the you know the logistics of it and how we do it when we're both working and children at school and all of that type of thing so um i think you know that just recently it it was more you know there's never a perfect time it certainly wasn't a perfect time for us to take that step um, but it was the time that it was sort of approaching we were either going to do it quite soon or, or we weren't going to do it at all. <laughs> so I think after after decades of, as I said, either working in, around or with the industry, we just thought it was time to put our money where our mouth was or, or put the bank's money where our mouth was and, and have a crack ourselves and... Um, and that's what we've done, and it's certainly it's certainly a big a big um, thing for us to do, and it's taken a long time for us to be able to get to the point um, from from a logistic and a time point of view, but definitely from a financial point of view, it's taken us a long time to be able to get to that point where we could actually consider it and start looking at options and start taking steps in that direction. It's it's quite a hard thing to do um, from scratch. So exactly. Such a huge um, commitment for you to have made because um, often, but not always, um, definitely not always in agriculture, there is an element of, of, of family and operations being passed down through generations, or you're working as, as a manager on a property for somebody else, but to be able to do it on your own is so huge. So what made you, um, what made you persist in that? And how does it draw upon the values instilled in you by your parents as, as a child? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I think how we persisted in it is just, I think we're just stubborn. I think we just really stubbornly wanted to do it. Um, and then I, I think there was also this, there, there also has to be that element of um, of just, you know, we didn't want to, we didn't want to not try. We didn't want to get to that point where we, you know, into our 60s or something like that. And, you know, it's just too late to kind of try and start you know, big, massive projects like that at that time. So we wanted to be able to sort of at least have a crack. And and look, who's, who knows, we still might, we still, it's, it's extremely early days for us and and we realise that and um, it might not work. It might not be, it might not be the thing for us, but we wanted to, we wanted to at least have a try. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, both, both of us come from families, you know, hardworking families that, um, that, have that kind of view, I suppose, of, you know, ha- having a try and, ha- and having a go. Um, so, yeah, we, we 
didn't necessarily have the financial support of of family, but we certainly had a hell of a lot of moral support um, from family. And and Jock's sister is um is a farmer in that area as well, not far from where we've purchased. And you know their their support has just been huge throughout this whole period. And you know my my parents and brothers and sisters are you know they're 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 just as excited as anyone else. You know they they're looking forward to getting out of Sydney themselves and helping wherever they can and. Um, you know, the times come for us to call on literally every, every favour we've ever, we've ever asked for to, you know, to come in. So, you know, there's that side of things, the, the personal side of things, which is, you know, what we've had a lot of, a lot of support there. Um, but like when I've reflected on it the last few months as well, just the, everyone talks about it, but just the importance of having, you know, that great professional network around you as well. Like we, we had, um, and still have a you know a great bank manager that is uh, you know being with us every single step of the way, and, and people really like to kind of slam the banks when they're doing things wrong, and you know in some cases it's very justified. But but you know when you get the right person that works with you, and 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 from that financial point of view to to, to as I said go through this process with us every single step of the way and be a champion for us. Um, on the financial side of things, that it's been critical. Um, we have an absolutely phenomenal agent um, that has helped us no end in sourcing cattle, and um, that you know the agent's also tied into merchandise sales and things in the local town. So you know, sorting us out with all of that and and helping us with that. Um, fantastic. Um, lawyer to help us with the legal side of things, you know, fantastic accountant to help us with the accounting side of things. But the importance of having the right people around you, both from a personal and professional um, point of view, it's, you know, as I said, people always talk about it, but it's actually really struck home for us in the last few weeks. Mm. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because one of the things that I've really wanted to ask you about, um, and we, we spoke about it when we, we spoke earlier, is that um the the importance of trust and family in rural communities so many rural communities are made up of families that have been there for generations and also the the service providers that you speak of of which you used to be one um become such mm. trusted members within the community and they do <clears throat> excuse me almost become part of the family what have been your observations on that from both sides of the fence it, you know, and I had worked, I've worked in a, with a couple of um, resellers, uh, elders and landmark, as it was known back then, Nutrien now. And, you know, on that on that side of the counter, I suppose, it was always um, fascinating and actually like a, a bit of a privilege, I, I've got to say, to me to be, you know, you're providing a professional service, but you you are so welcomed into the families and lives um, and this like kind of mix of like everything's kind of mixed up as professional and personal kind of, um, you know, side of things is all mixed up. And you, and that's, I mean, that's just the nature of farming, but because you are a professional service provider in that field, you do, you do become a really um, critical part of that person's support network. And, you know, with some of you, um, even to the point of, you know, being considered um, family, as you say, so that, you know, that that was always my observation when I was certainly working in the field and it was very different to 
say high school friends that had gone down other paths, other career paths and working in different areas, you know, to, to sort of relate my experiences as a young, you know, in my 20s sort of thing to be to be hearing about, you know, their workplace culture versus my workplace culture. I, yeah, I just, I just knew it was very, very different what I was doing. Um, and then, you know, certainly being able to sort of, re- I was talking to my husband about this the other day, you know, that, that you know, the shoe's on the other foot now that we are, you know, talking to those people, inviting them into our lives, into our business, um, but it's not just business, like they get to know us very well, they get to know our family very well, they get to know, you know, our finances um, intimately, like it's, it's it, and, it, and there is such a degree of trust. And in some ways, you, you actually have to allow yourself to trust people, you know, if you've got a good recommendation from a, a, a trusted family member or friend in the same area, and they've referred you to a certain um, service provider, you know, that that's gold, because that you know that that person that you're going to is going to really look after you and and hopefully you can look after them as well in terms of their in terms of their business and it's a really important relationship um, between those service providers and and the clients that they that they support and for them as well they they have families themselves um, to support um, in the in the local towns and you know they they need the support also I just love it that you're verbalizing it in this way because I think your observations are exactly the scaffolding that hold rural communities together, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, you know, they're, it's complex. It is, it is complex and it does. Yeah, it's complex and it's, and it's different and it's great and it's, I think like to pick up on your word, like the trust that's there is immense. And look, and you know, sometimes you hear bad stories and sometimes that trust is breached, but not often, you know, like it's I think I think on both sides of the ledger, people understand the value of those relationships and um, you know, they work really hard to try and maintain those relationships because they know it's about um not just it's not just about like the survival of their business. It's about how their business thrives because if their business is thriving, then the service providers that they um, depend on, you know, their business is thriving also. Like I saw some comments on social media the other day about our stock and station agents getting paid too much at the moment because, you know, the price of um, cattle particularly and, you know, and sheep as well as pretty high, record highs in some areas at the moment. So, you know, agents commission percentages haven't necessarily changed amongst that um, amongst that you know backdrop of high prices of livestock and so agents are doing getting you know doing it pretty well at the moment and you know people um, wanting to kind of open that up for discussion and to be blunt some people wanting to have a whinge about it like I, I just don't from my point of view and as I said it's very early days our agent has been just exceptional and I think will be continue to be exceptional going forward and most other people I speak to um, have the same views of their agent and if they aren't getting that service then they probably need to change who they use as their agent Uh, and you know on the flip side as well we've also in many areas just been through a pretty bad drought where agents probably weren't doing it that well Um, and they have families to support as well and and businesses to look after and communities to look after as well so it's kind of you know I think it's important that we all stick together through the good times and the bad. 
So in ending, Danica, how long until you think you can be living on your farm all the time? <laughs> I'm not sure. I've got, you know, kids to get through high school and, um, you know, we split our time between here and, and Gawai at the moment. And um, so far, so good. You know, as much as I'd love to be there full time, I also, you know, love my job and, and, and love, you know, the career trajectory that that I'm on um, and particularly love working for the CWA. I think when I first started, I, you know, a mentor of mine had said to me, oh, you know, the, the, the 100 years is in 2022. Like that, that would be a really great target for you, like to work towards six years from now. And I just, um, it's not that I w- didn't, it's not that I didn't want to do six years. I just couldn't actually kind of get my head around. I thought it was such a long way away. And, he, and here we are. Um, and, you know, really, just there's so much more work to do I think if I can continue to to do that work and continue to help the organization you know to you know to do what it's always done you know I don't have to do a whole heap of work it's just you know a bit of assistance and guidance and underpinning and what they do and making sure that they that it's all done you know administratively the correct way um then you know I'm really happy to do that and we've we've done a lot in the last six years but I um I still think there's a lot more work to do. So in answer to your question, I'm I'm not sure, but I look forward to spending a fair bit of time at the farm over Christmas. Put it that way. <laughs> or are you going to be this this uh, new um, wave of modern farming in that you will be hopping between the two um, f- forever, and that and that's fine. Potentially, yeah, pot- potentially, and you know, maybe I um I got my truck license in twenty twenty one, so maybe I have to look at getting my um my pilot's license oh. or something, so I can do it more easily in the future. <laughs> How much time do you do you actually get to spend on the farm working? Uh look, it's it's only been a couple of months, so um, I've been able to spend a fair bit, um, and I think look, I think the fact that we've been working from home over the last couple of years mm. also means that it's actually more doable to be able to, you know, split my time between the two. I'd be on the farm um, working from home or be back in Sydney working from the office or going to face-to-face meetings as needed. So I do think that there is a silver lining in some of this um, lockdown that we've had to go through because we are, as an organisation, a lot more open to you know the idea of flexible working going forward. So I think that's that's helped, um, and and certainly helped in the last couple of months because I've been able to to spend you know a week at a time here and there um, up at the farm and as needed and 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 do what needs to be done and luckily daylight saving I know a lot of farms don't like daylight saving but for me it's a godsend at the moment oh Danica it's been so wonderful chatting with you thank you for for speaking with us on life on the land oh it's been amazing chatting to you thank you so much for having me what a privilege thank you so much talk about juggling and capably so Danica has so many strings to her bow and many 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 hours of driving between her two home hubs in Sydney and Gunnedah. I love this story of working 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 in the knowledge that one day you will be able to realize your dream of having your own patch of land. 
If you want to read more stories of women working, working, working and following their dream of a life on the land, then you better get your head into the latest edition of the Grazy Her magazine, which remains on sale now. Or you can subscribe at grazyher.com.au. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another Life on the Land story.